You are listening to Venture Church Podcast. For more information, visit jointheventure.com or facebook.com slash jointheventure. We hope you enjoy. So last week, I was in my hometown and I got to take part in a time-honored event for anyone who's from Wilson, North Carolina. Is anybody here from Wilson? I'm just curious. Yeah, oh yeah. See, we're from Wilson, we know. See, there's a couple of places in Wilson that you gotta know about. Everyone who's outside of Wilson knows about them. If you drive by on the highway, you know about them. They are either A, Parker's Barbecue, or B, Bill's Barbecue, and there will be a fist fight between people who are on varying sides of the issue of who makes better barbecue. Well, I'm kind of in the middle because I'm an out-of-towner now, but man, I got the opportunity to go to Bill's Barbecue last weekend for lunch, and let me just tell you, man, they have buffet style. Okay, and when you get up there, it's all you can eat, like southern fried chicken, you got, you got, your, uh, you got your, your, your fried okra, chicken pastry, of course, North Carolina pulled pork barbecue, green beans, lima beans, uh, collard greens, corn, you got hush puppies, you got corn sticks, and that's just like getting started, that's like, that's the first round, that's you just getting started, and you could go up as many times as you want, and then if that isn't enough, there's also a dessert bar, I'm talking about like banana pudding, strawberry shortcake, chocolate cake, my personal favorite Green Jello. I don't just eat Green Jello, but I love when you go to a buffet and there's just like it's just all you can eat Green Jello. Incidentally, there is only one appropriate way to eat Green Jello. You know what that is, right? You slurp it through your front teeth. That's the only way to eat Green Jello. So I love just grubbing out. Uh, in America, especially in the South, we call this kind of food soul food. Some people call it comfort food because it's the type of food that your grandma used to make. Right, it's the kind of food that brings something, it transcends just basic nutrients. Uh, in fact, there's actually very little positive nutrients in most soul foods. It, it's, it's something deeper. It nourishes your soul. We love these foods because they do more for us than just give us a full belly. They give us something warm. A many a jilted lover has sat on a couch in front of a chick flick eating ice cream out of the container. Soul food, Right? I know that a lot of us have sat somewhere with a broken heart and eaten raw cookie dough right out of the plastic. <laughs> it's soul food. And, and, and who hasn't had an opportunity, something like this, where you've sat down, you've, you put a, a spoonful of chicken noodle soup in your mouth, and it's like getting in a time machine, and suddenly you're eight years old again, you're staying home from school sick, you know, whoever's taking care of you is feeding you that chicken noodle soup. It's soul food. What I'm saying is that there's something about soul food that gives us peace. And your soul food might not be fried chicken or pork chops or, or meatloaf. For you, it might be a hot dog at a ball game that you used to get with a special somebody. For you, it might be that TV dinner you used to share with your dad on a special night. Like, it, there's, there's a lot of things that could be a soul food, but there is something in the concept of soul food that turns my mind to spiritual things. Today, I want to kick off a new series, a new teaching series called Soul Food, and we're going to be spending six weeks talking about the very idea of what does it take to nourish our soul. Certainly there's ways to nourish our bodies. We are meeting in a gym, you know, and we could go and do all kinds of things to get our bodies healthy. But how do we keep our souls healthy? We're not just flesh and bones. Each one of us has a spiritual side of us, and it's not just something that Christians thought up because they're crazy. If you look around the world at all major world groups, world religions, world uh, cultures, everyone acknowledges that there's a spiritual side to life. I mean, that's just, that's just a general concept that everyone's come to the agreement on. The big difference is, or one major difference, is how we deal with that spiritual side. That's, that's kind of some of the debate and the discussion that happens between religious groups and cultural groups. 
But the fact remains that there's a spiritual side out there, and the question that's there is, how do we take care of that? How do we nourish that? How do we fill it? How do we take care of it? For the next six weeks, I want to dig in to God. I want to find some ways that we can nourish our soul and get started and maybe ask ourselves the question, how can I train myself to be spiritually focused on God? At first, it might seem like a really big task. Step back for a second and think about how big that kind of is. How do you even access your soul? Like, is there, there's no like a secret compartment that you make some adjustments. Like, how do you get there? How do you find it? How can you access it? Maybe you've been to one of those huge buffets like I talked about. Maybe for you it was a southern style buffet. Or maybe it was Chinese buffet or, or seafood buffet. I'm guessing everybody in here has been to some kind of buffet. Maybe one of those smorgasbord uh, chain places like, uh, like, like Golden Corral. And, and you show up and there's just a thousand million bajillion options. It's hard to know where to start on a buffet like that. Did you get a salad or should I just go straight for the dessert? Because it might not be there when I get back. And, you know, and why are there cheeseburgers on the buffet? That's awesome. I need seven. And so if you're like me, you, you panic and you just, just dive in somewhere. And you're like, I know I don't need three pounds of mashed potatoes, but I paid $12 for this. I'm going to make this count. And you get done. You're like, I should have started somewhere more intentional. Um, where do you start? I think the same thing can be said about our spiritual life. Where do you start? You could come to church your entire life and you could hear about all these awesome people that did awesome things and you can read the Bible and you can hear all these great points and, but then you're still kind of like, that sounds great but I still haven't really walked in the front gate yet. Like where do I start? Where do I buy tickets to get on the carousel? Like how do I get going with this thing? Or maybe you've been doing it for a while but you, you feel stagnant in it and you're like, I just kind of need a reboot. Where do I start? When it comes to spiritual training, when it comes to soul food, I think a great place to start is the Bible. The Bible. There are a lot of places you can start. We're going to talk about a lot of those over the next several weeks. But today what I want to do is take a look at the Bible, and not just generically the Bible. That's kind of how it's often presented. It's just read the Bible, and you get it, and you're like, okay, I got a Bible. I, have it. I got seven Bibles. I got a giant one that my great-grandma gave me. It's on my coffee table. I don't know where to start what do I open to? What do I read? What I want to do today is take a look at kind of the lay of the land of the Bible because the way that we receive the Bible, it kind of comes to us in one nice leather-bound volume these days. It's really nice. But the Bible is not so much a book as it is a library of books. And so you can't just open up to any place in the Bible and start reading expecting to get the same kind of contents. You wouldn't go to the reference section of the library, open up an encyclopedia looking for a recipe on how to bake bread. It just doesn't work that way. You want to go to another section that has cookbooks, right? And so the Bible's the same way. There's different types of books, and you can access different things at different times in your life. Um, so let's just take a look at the Bible, and I want to start by just looking at the Word Bible, the Word Bible. Uh, first, the word Bible comes from a word that means book. Okay, so when you have the Bible, what you're talking about is book. Okay, many times if you own a Bible, uh, by the way, we have free ones we give away here at church every week. And so there's probably one tucked around underneath your seat or the seat of your neighbor. Uh, there's some more in the back. Most Bibles will say, Holy Bible. In fact, that's something that if you're, you're new to church or maybe you've been pushed off by church or God, you see Holy Bible and that kind of kind of scrapes you the wrong way. It's like holy Bible and it thinks it's special. Well, let's talk about the word holy. The word holy simply means something that's set apart for a purpose. It's holy. It's set apart for a purpose. In this context, it's set apart for God's purpose. So the Holy Bible is a book set apart for God's purpose. It's pretty simple. It's, it's God's book. It's, it's God's book. That's the idea of it. And like I said, although it comes to us in a single volume, we really get more of a library. 
Each book was written by a human hand. But I believe that each author was inspired and guided by the Spirit of God. We call it the Holy Spirit. And here, again, you might have a lot of questions about the Bible in general. Is it reliable? There's a lot of, quote, holy books out there. Where do I start? I, I'm not going to get into all that today. I've done it before. What I'm going to do this week, we're going to have a blog posted on jointheventure.com. That's the church website. And it's going to share some of the resources that we've shared before and, and actually a couple more. Uh, every semester, every twice a year, we offer uh, a class called Venture Basics where we spend one whole evening it's about an hour and a half talking about things like the reliability of the Bible. And so there's lots of resources out there, a lot of things. And so maybe you're just kind of in a seeking mode, a questioning mode. By all means, ask those questions and check out that blog this week. I want to link you to some various resources that you could check into. But as we get into today, I want to take a look at the lay of the land of the Bible. Here's a thought. If God's spirit was indeed involved in making the Bible happen, and we are spiritual beings, and the question is how do we nourish our spirit what about going to a book written by God to nourish our soul? Where do I start? Where do I start? Okay, the Bible uh, is divided into two major divisions. I talk about this all the time. I'm going to kind of go through this part kind of quick. But at the very beginning, there's the first two-thirds. We call that the Old Testament. What we're going to do today is build a bit of a library up here on the screen. In this first two shelves, we're going to fill with the books of the Old Testament. The Old Testament of the Bible was the section that was written before Jesus lived. It's primarily focused on the history of the Jewish people. Specifically, the family tree of one guy named Abraham. Okay, and so for the next two shelves, what we're going to look at is books written by people from that family tree or about people from that family tree. Uh, my son is in Cub Scouts, and recently we had to do a project for one of his achievements where he had to make a family tree of his family. And so it was really cool to dig in with him and, and draw the, the thing. And there were people that I didn't know their names, so I had to call my dad once, I had to call my grandma, and be like, who was so-and-so's parent? Like, I didn't know. It was really neat to dig in with my son and go over some of that heritage of our family. It's good to know where you come from. Oh, this person did that, and this person did that, and this person uh, lived here, and this person lived there. The Old Testament of the Bible is the roots from where Christianity springs. And it's kind of like the family tree of Christianity. As you look back through it, you can get some history and some heritage and understand where we come from. I've met a lot of people who don't know anything about where they came from. It's just a mystery. But when it comes to Jesus and Christians, our heritage is no mystery. In fact, the Old Testament is very time-tested and proven. It was completed before Jesus was ever born. It's not like the Christians went back and edited it to make sure that it fit what they were saying. It was done hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. So that's the Old Testament. Let me show you how this is divided up. Uh, the, the, the Old Testament is kind of uh, grouped in various ways, and maybe you learned a different way. If you Google it, you'll see people group it various ways slightly. But I'm going to give you a very simple one. The first five books of the Old Testament we call the law. The law. These are the books that the Jews look to as a code for, for moral conduct and, and for how to worship. And the Jews received this from God, they believed, and, and, and Moses wrote them all down. And so this is the law. We have the books Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If you've got a Bible with you today, you can look. The first five books of the Bible will be those, and they'll be these first five books. That's the law. The second grouping of books we're going to call history. The books of history are, are just that. They're, they're a history of the Jewish nation. So the first three that we get are Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. They tell about a time before the Jews had a king. 
That's essentially what's going on there. And then you've got a series of books that deal with the history during a time of kings. You've got First and Second Samuels, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. These are all histories of the kings of Israel until the nation was captured, uh, eventually by the Babylonians. They're actually dragged off into exile. It's a crazy piece of world history, actually. And they end up in exile for a long period of time. And then we have the last three books of history, which are Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And these three books are basically history of how the Jews find their way back to Palestine, where, where they uh, were at the time Jesus came. So there are the books of the law, the books of history. The next little grouping, and this is just kind of going straight through the Old Testament, so you can flip through your Bible and look at the index. It's right there. Is a section called Poetry. Now, this would be broken up a couple different ways. I'm just going to call it Poetry today. We get five books, uh, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Um, they're beautiful prayers and songs and proverbs, even some history and stories, but they're composed in a little bit more of a poetic format. Uh, there's like, there's, if you remember from high school when poems are, are shorter stanzas, thank you, stanzas, and they come down and they're, they're written in small sections. A lot of them are written that way, so that's one reason some people would qualify these as poetry books, and the Jews looked to these a lot of times as they were worshiping, uh, and there would be things that they would go to to, to draw source of, of uh, songs to sing and things to talk about. The last section of the Old Testament we call prophecy. Now, you'll notice that there are some big fat books and some little skinny books, and, and that's because that's kind of how they are. There's some that are really fat, some that are really skinny, and basically the prophets were people that God spoke to to bring truth to the people, to the Jews. Many times there was a very clear message about what he was saying. I want you to stop doing this one thing, and if you don't, I want you to let you know that your nation is going to fall. There's going to be this army. They're going to come take you over. Very specific, relevant something to the moment. Then there were other things that were more prophetic, as in telling the future. These are some of the most compelling arguments for the, real, the realism of Jesus. Because some of the prophecies that were written about Jesus were written four, five, six, seven hundred years before Jesus was ever born. And then when you examine the life of Jesus as we see it from history and from the New Testament, you see that Jesus hits every single one of those prophecies. It's amazing. In fact, it was the prophets that the first Christians found the most faith in as they decided to put faith in Jesus. We find a man who's reading through the book of Isaiah and there's this prophecy of this person who's a Messiah, a Savior. And he goes to one of the apostles and just says, who is this talking about? And he's like, you know, I'm glad you asked. Because he came. His name's Jesus. It's very, very compelling things. And so if you're looking for a, a place to build faith, the Old Testament can be a good place to start. And now you know a little bit more about how it's broken up. This week I sat in front of my TV. And I was completely confused. Because as I sat there, uh, you might have heard that there uh, are a few elections going on right now. Uh, and there's this lady, her name's Kay Hagan. She's a pretty big deal. It's like our governor. And uh, she, she's got a very strong opinion about the guy she's running against. You ever heard Tom Tillis? Well, here's the thing. I'm very confused because I'm not sure what either one of them is actually for. But I know that they're both against each other because according to Kay Hagan, Tom Tillis has done nothing for the state of North Carolina. And according to Tom, then Kay Hagan's done nothing for the state of North Carolina. So looking at that, I'm like, well, neither one of you seem like very good candidates. I mean, now here's the truth. They probably have both done more to the state than either one of them is going to be willing to give credit for. And I never use this stage as a platform to talk about politics. I think that there's way more eternally important things for me to talk about from this stage. My point is this. When it comes to elections, we put a lot of stock in people's track record, don't we? We want to know what they've done, what they've stood for, what have they voted for in the past. Don't tell me what you're going to vote for because you voted 500 times for this other thing. 
We use track record to prove and, and, and predict a lot of things. You guys playing fantasy football, anybody? I mean, you, you look at those, per, those, uh, those predicted scores that you're going to get for your fantasy football players. The analysts use players' track records to determine that. It's how you decide if you're going to go out on another date with someone who you've decided to break up with. I just don't know if this is going to be good for us. Like, it just hasn't worked out the last 19 times. It's track record. Here's my point. Track record really matters. And when it comes to God... The Old Testament is his track record. It tells us how he has continuously been faithful. Sometimes we look through the Old Testament and we don't understand parts of it. And we think that if I was God, I would have done something different. You know, yeah, I've had all of the same thoughts. But the bottom line is this, that God is faithful to those who honor him. That's the one thing I can walk away from the Old Testament with. One of the things. There are several, obviously. It's a big book. Track record matters. And so that's the Old Testament, and that's God's track record. I want to move on to the New Testament and get to something we can really bite our teeth into for today as we try to nourish our souls. Um, as we look at the rest of the Bible, the Old Testament is the story of God continually, continually loving people despite their constant attempts to disobey him. Time and time again, it seems that the nation of Israel is fading away, but with each new generation, there's new hope. As new people come forward and say, wait, the ways of my fathers and my grandfathers was not the way. We need to turn our hearts back to God. After the final chapters of the book of the Old Testament, can we put that shelf back up there, uh, the next one with the New Testament on the bottom? There's this gap that I've left after prophecy, and there's about 400 years where we don't really get anything from God in terms of a book in terms of a prophet or uh, someone who felt inspired and wrote down and, and that the people of the nation felt like this is definitely the word of God. That doesn't end up in our modern day Bibles. And so there's this period of time, let me just tell you about the Jews during this time period. Uh, many of them uh, were doing their best to just continue to worship God. And many of them were very, very good people. But a lot of them were just losing patience with God. Like, man, it's been hundreds of years since we've heard from God. There was this time when there was prophets speaking and there was a clear message from God. But what do we do right now? Well, from what I can tell, God understands us way better than we realize and way better than we give him credit for. And he knows how much we value track record. And so God's like, I want you to know I do have a plan. And my plan is actually to improve my track record even more. So this is what he chooses to do. He decides to make himself into a human and come to earth. And it's crazier than that. He becomes a human baby. Have you ever seen a baby? They're about the most helpless creature on the planet. They can do nothing for themselves. This is God of the universe saying, I am willing to submit myself in humility and come down. Why? Because I want to live a life as a human so that when I do what I came to do, people can then look at me and go, God understands me. He's been there from the ground up. He could have come as a general. He could have come as a king. He could have come as a big face in the sky. But instead he chose to come as a human baby. Again, if you're still dealing with some of this stuff and the the. Uh, you know, the reliability of Jesus and did he actually exist. I do want to encourage you to check out the blog we'll post this week and continue seeking because I understand that's a big, a big, big concept for God to become human. But God says, I want you to know I loved you enough to come down here and experience life the way that you experience it so that when you're struggling, you'll come to me because you'll know that I understand. And so after 400 years of silence, boom, God shows up as a baby, 
He says, I got your soul food. It's me. Let me show you how this works. So the New Testament is like this. This bottom shelf is going to be full. The first four books we get, uh, we call the Gospels. The word gospel, it means good news. The good news is God came and he's going to show us a way back to his love when we've strayed away from him. That's what the word gospel is all about, good news. And the good news is all about Jesus. When God became human, we call that Jesus. So the gospels are about Jesus. And actually they're kind of like four different biographies of the life and teachings of Jesus. And if you've read multiple biographies about a famous person in history, you know that a different biographer is going to write with a slightly different uh, perspective, and some of them were right there with him. Some of them did the research uh, a little bit after he had actually traveled. Some of them uh, came in halfway through his, his journey as he was teaching. And so you kind of get some different perspectives. Some were written specifically to be relative to a Jewish audience. Some were specifically written to be uh, relative to people who weren't Jewish. And so that's why there's four Gospels, and I think it's good that we have them. It's cool to me that the Bible is often called the Word of God. That's what a lot of times what you, you might hear people call the Bible the Word of God, and I think it's pretty accurate. Um, God's words are powerful. They really are. If you read about the creation of the world, it says that in the beginning, God said, let there be light. He didn't go to his pantry and get the Play-Doh and make you know, dinosaurs. He said, let there be this. He said, let's create man in our likeness. What was God's powerful creative force? It was his word. And so God's word is powerful. So back to the gospels. John is the fourth gospel that we get. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And the way that it starts off is awesome. Let's just read that together. John 1. We're just going to just start with verse 1. We're actually going to read all four verses, the first four verses. It says this. In the beginning was the what? The word. In the beginning was the word. Like I just said. Let there be light. That was God's word. In the beginning there was the word. And the word was God. The, girl, the word was with God, and the word was God. John's talking about someone, an entity, that is with God in the beginning. And he calls that someone the word. It's like he's part of God's existence. It's, it's not a separate person, it's just the word part. Of God. Does that make sense? Kind of. It's big. It's God. It's a huge concept. In the beginning was the Word. So now knowing that, that there was this entity that John identifies called the Word. Let's read the rest of this. So we'll back up just starting in verse 1 again. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And he, the Word, was with God in the beginning. Through him, the Word, all things were made. Without him, the Word, nothing was made that's been made. In him, the Word was life. And that life was the light of mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There's this person called the Word, and he's got a very important job. It is to bring life and to shine light into darkness. And not only is that a physical reality, but we find later that it is, it is a metaphor for good is light evil is darkness. This person, the word. And so John spends some more time hashing that out in the, first God, in that, the fourth gospel there. But then in verse 14, he kind of comes back to the idea of the word. It says this, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Who is the word? It's Jesus. 
Jesus is God's word incarnate. He was God's word as human being. That's why the whole Jesus thing is so powerful. God's words are powerful, so powerful that as he came down to be a human, it was the word part of him that came to do that. The word that was from the beginning is Jesus, and Jesus is the word of God in human form. God had not been silent for 400 years to leave mankind hanging. That was not his goal. He'd been preparing since the beginning of the Old Testament to give his biggest gift to humanity, to make himself into a human, so that he could shine light into the world and bring life to those who seek him. The Gospels, these four books, are about Jesus. They're about where we can find life and light. And I don't know where you are with God today. Maybe it's your first time you just showed up and you're just curious about Christianity. But I got a feeling that most of us watch the news and we see things happening around us and we listen to craziness going on in our family and we're like, I just need life and light. If I could have those two things in my life, I think so much would be better. And Jesus says it's a good thing because that's what I came to bring. John says he's full of grace and truth. So that's what the New Testament is about. The New Testament is about Jesus. It's about God's plan to bring life and light to the earth. And so we've got the Gospels here, and we're going to move on and just kind of go through the rest of them because that sets us up for where the rest of them go. Uh, the, the next one, uh, I'm just going to call it Acts. Some people call it history. But I don't think you should categorize one thing. Just call it what it is. It's just Acts. Uh, the book of Acts is the history of a specific group of people. During Jesus' life, he gained followers, tens of thousands of followers. And from those, he chose 12 men that he kind of pulled together and said, I want you to be my specific spokesman. He called them apostles. The word apostle means someone sent with a message. And so he said, I want you to take my message into the world. It was never God's plan to come and stay on earth forever. What he wanted to do was to come and spark a movement of people who could move for him. And so the book Acts is sometimes, in old, old Bibles, it's often called the Acts of the Apostles. That's what, it's like Acts, like actions. And so it's called Acts because it's the Acts of these men who go, and, and so you follow them as they go from city to city, and they teach, and, and as the church grows, and, and they do some amazing things. They're able to actually perform miracles. They start churches all over the world. And, and you think of churches that kind of spring up in Wilmington. Uh, a lot of people come through here, maybe you're here today, you know, I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes, but I hear this phrase a lot. I'm just church shopping. I'm just church shopping. Like, you know, there's a lot of good ones out there. I want to get the best one. You know what I'm saying? So I'm just church shopping. It's cool. I get it. These guys, like, started the church. There was no shopping. It was like, this is a church. Sorry if you don't like it. This is it. We're in Ephesus, and we're all meeting at that guy's house. This is the church in this city. Sorry. That's what these guys did. They started. They sparked. They led the revolution, the movement that became Christianity. So it's the Acts of the Apostles. Acts is also where we read about the beginning of the church. Acts is also where we read about where God says, it wasn't ever my intention to stay here forever as Jesus. I'm actually going to send my spirit to you to minister to you one-on-one. -on -one. That's why we talk about the Holy Spirit in church and from the Bible because God says, the part of me that interacts the most intimately with you is my spirit. And so we see that happening in the book of Acts. We see a lot of great things, some monumental moments throughout history. One of my favorites is in Acts chapter 2 where we see the church begin. Acts chapter 2 is, is kind of uh, a coronation day for the church. It just kicks it off. And when it gets to uh, about verse 38, there's a bunch of people who hear Peter, who's one of the apostles, talking about Jesus and saying, we want to know more about this Jesus. What should we do? And there's this sentence that he utters that kind of, it's turned the tide for so many humans throughout history to say, I need to do something different. This is what he says. He says, you, you want to turn towards God? Well, then repent 
It means turn from the way that you've been leaving and, and head a different direction. Repent and be baptized. And baptism was something that the early church practiced for every new believer. Every one of you do that. Repent, turn from your sin, be baptized, get inaugurated into this new life with Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, which is what Jesus came to do, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is that intimate connection with God. This is a monumental sentence in history. And Peter says it in the book of Acts. He says, listen, everything can change now. You can turn to God, be baptized, turn your life over to Jesus. You'll receive forgiveness of your sins. God will look at you blameless, even though you are blame, <laughs> and give you the Holy Spirit. And so that happens there. And there's many more stories about how quickly the church grew and the response people had to the gospel, the good news about Jesus. After the book of Acts, we get another section of the book called The Letters. Uh, there's a lot of them, again, just like in the prophets. We can put the letters up there. Uh, there's some thick ones. There's some thin ones. And it just represents the variety. Uh, a letter is just what it is today. It was a letter written to someone uh, somewhere. So we have the apostles and the early church leaders writing letters to, for example, churches in different cities. And so we have books in the Bible called things like Romans and first and second Corinthians and Ephesians. Why are they called that? Well, because they were written to churches in Rome and Corinth and Ephesus. That's why they're called that. It's an easy way to label it. And so those things were copied and passed down. Um, then you have other letters that were written to people, people with names like Timothy and Philemon. These were letters. Then you have other letters that were written for general circulation and they bear the names of their authors. So you got books by Peter, the Apostle Peter, and they're just called First and Second Peter. You got this guy, John, who does a lot of writing in the New Testament. Uh, not only does he write a gospel, he also writes three letters, First and Second and Third John. And they were just generally passed around between the churches. And so we have these letters. These 21 letters are a great place for people who have decided to be Christians to find out how to live every day. It's practical stuff. How do I act in my marriage? How do I act as a parent? How do I act in society? How do I act when somebody does me wrong? That's what the letters are really good for because they were written as letters to real people with real problems on the real planet Earth with real solutions and real suggestions and real answers. And so the letters are a good place to start if you've got specific questions. By the way, Google is a great way to help figure out the letters. If you've got a specific question about what does the Bible say about this, Again, there are crazy people on the internet that don't know what they're talking about. But if you eventually get back to the actual Bible and read it for yourself, you'll be okay. So if you're looking for the place to start, maybe the letters are good for you. Maybe the Gospels are good for you. Maybe just the story of the early church in the book of Acts is good for you. The final book in the New Testament is called Revelation. Uh, it was written about the year 90 or 100 A.D., very close proximity to when Jesus actually walked the earth. And uh, you got this guy. He's the Apostle John. We read from his gospel. We talked about his three letters. He also writes this book called Revelation. Uh, and what happened is John had a vision of heaven, and he wrote it down. And there's a lot that could be said about the book of Revelation. We could do a 21-week study on the book of Revelation, and then we could all leave here, and we would disagree with each other on what different things mean because it was a vision that someone had. And through the years, many people have interpreted it different ways. But here is the bottom line that everyone can agree on that studies the book of Revelation, that in the end, Jesus shines light into dark places, and he is victorious over evil. I believe that through all of the imagery that we find in the book of Revelation, if you have looked at it, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, start on a different book, get to Revelation later. It's okay, you'll get there. But the one thing that is consistent is that Jesus is seen as the primary figure defeating evil on the earth. And so that's what we can walk away with from the book of Revelation. And I think it's a pretty good cap to the end of the Bible. God's like, done. 
finish. Now do it. Live it. Be about it. The New Testament is the most well-attested ancient document in the world. It's a heavy statement, but it's been made by brilliant people who have studied manuscripts on top of manuscripts, on top of manuscripts, comparing them to other ancient documents. And it's been said that if we throw out the New Testament, and again, this will be part of the stuff posted in the blog. I won't get into all today because it'll be confusing because I have to rush and I talk too fast anyway. When you get to... Uh, understanding the manuscript level of the New Testament and what, what exists historically for us, it is more well attested than any other ancient document. So fine, if we want to throw the New Testament out and say it's not reliable, let's, let's throw it out. But if we do that, we have to throw out every other ancient document ever. And we have no reliable history at all until the invention of the printing press. And so, and maybe not even then, because I'm not sure the internet's even reliable. So, you know, um, that's something I would encourage you to, to dig into and talk about a little bit more. Uh, there's a sermon that I preached a few, it was earlier this year, from a series called All In. And I'm going to be posting a link to that in the blog this week. And it's specifically talking about some of these uh, evidences for the reliability of the New Testament. So um, here's the point. Why did I go through all that? I mean, you're standing at the buffet to feed your soul. And the options are like, where do I begin? Do I get a salad? Do I start with the soup? Do I get seven cheeseburgers and three pounds of mashed potatoes? Where do I begin? Having a lay of the land, can we put the whole library back up there again, Miranda? Having a whole lay of the land, now you kind of see what the different parts are. And here's what I want to encourage you to do. Pick one place to start. A lot of times when we read through the Bible, we do the pin the tail and the donkey method. If you've ever done this, you flip through and you're like, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. I'll read right there. And it's worked for me. It's actually pretty cool how it actually works out sometimes. But what I want to encourage you to do is be intentional about it. I want to suggest to you that you probably start with the book of John or Mark. Because those are books just about the life of Jesus. You'll see how he taught. You'll see how he lived. You'll see what all the hype is about. And if you've been in Christianity a little bit longer, I would encourage you to take a look at these different sections of the Bible and say, what is something that I just need to learn more about? If you're in a place where you need to gain some more faith, maybe you look at some of the history of the Old Testament and see where did God deliver his people or where were people consistently opposed to God and God showed them, look, if you're going to live like that, this is what's going to happen. Where do we begin Maybe we would begin with God's word. So I want to encourage you this week to start somewhere and don't do it alone. Get with somebody that you think is on the same page as you, a roommate or a spouse or significant other. Maybe it's just a friend that you work with or go to school with. And you say, look, I'm trying to read the Bible and I'm just trying to read like a few verses a day and I want to read through the book of John because I've never really done that before. Maybe I've done it before but it's been a long time and I just kind of want to know more about Jesus. Will you do that with me? Like, I'll check in with you on Tuesday and Thursday. You check in with me on Monday and Wednesday and on Friday. It's free for all, and we can take a break on Saturday and Sunday. Like, whatever. But don't do it alone. Get with somebody and try and give it a shot. There's a scene that plays out in my house a few times a week. It's kind of funny. Uh, my wife's a great cook, and she'll cook this great dinner. And one of my kids will get his, his or her plate of food, and they'll go, oh, I don't want this. And I'll push the plate away. And... Uh, we're just kind of old school, I guess, because we're like, um, that's what we're having. So if you're not going to eat that, I guess you can maybe try again at breakfast, because that's what we're having. Like, we're not ogres. Like, we make good food, and, you know, we don't, have this, we don't intentionally pick out food that they don't like, but it's just, that's what we're having. That's what we say. You had a chance, and here it is. Well, then, inevitably, a few hours later, it's bedtime, and they're laying in their bed, and then I hear one of them go, Dad, I'm hungry. I know you're hungry. You didn't eat supper. Of course you're hungry. And 
I go to them and I say, I'm sorry, you had a chance to eat. You chose not, maybe we are ogres, I don't know, maybe it's terrible. <laughs> I've been to third world countries, I've been to Ecuador, I've seen kids who don't have food, I'm like, this is great food, eat it. Maybe you can try again at breakfast. Sometimes we come to church and we do spiritual things and people tell us stuff that's going to help us. And I know every week I do my best. I'm not perfect, guys. I've said it before. I want to make sure I say I'm not perfect. I screw up all the time. I don't read my Bible like I should. But people take the time to, to set the table for you and show you, like, look, if, if you're hungry spiritually, here's a place to start. And Monday or Tuesday rolls around and we're deciding, I'm going to push the plate away. I'm not, not hungry Choose to eat. Choose to eat. That's soul food. Let me pray for you guys. I love you, Lord. I thank you for your word. It's good. It can be confusing. It can be complicated. But it's also simple because it's been translated into English for us. And sometimes we just need to take the time to, to read it. I pray, God, as I shared with the volunteers this morning, that you give me the diligence to be in the Bible more to study and to care more and to try harder. Lord, I'm thankful that you're not keeping tabs on us and giving us a checklist of how good we did so that we can get into heaven because <laughs> all of us would probably be in some trouble if that was the case. But instead you offer us grace and you say, do the best you can and I'm gonna make up the difference. Lord, as we take this next five more weeks to learn about more soul food, I pray that we'll take the chance to eat. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.